0: God, we are so thankful that your word is alive and active, it is authoritative, it is powerful. Lord, we ask that you would, Lord, take your word and, Lord, do a work in our hearts, Lord, deep within our hearts in a way that convicts us and reveals things and, Lord, pierces our hearts today. Lord, I pray that you would conform us into the image of Jesus, Lord, over these next few moments as we see things perhaps in our own lives that we may not have seen on our own. So Lord, give us listening ears, give us open hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The tombstones or gravestones have evolved throughout history. In the 1600s, tombstones became very popular. They were these large, flat, inscribed stones that commemorated the deceased, In the 1800s, these inscriptions became much more elaborate, not only including the name and the birth date and the death date, but they also started to include epitaphs, these short phrases paying tribute to the departed. Epitaph is something that is a concise memory of the deceased encapsulating their legacy and their impact. The sermon's not about death this morning, so maybe just to lighten the mood, I want to share just a couple of humorous epitaphs that I came across uh, this week. I saw one that said, and I quote, wow, it's dark down here. Another that said, I told you I was sick. And then another one that said, here lies John Yeast, pardon me for not rising, let that sink in for a moment. All right. <laughs> on a more serious note, though, it got me wondering, you know, if you wrote your own epitaph, what, what would you write about your life? How would you be remembered based on the way that you lived your life here on the earth? First Samuel 15 is known as God's final rejection of Saul as king over Israel. Saul's reign here comes to a very, very sad end. And because we've been looking at Saul over the last couple of of weeks and and several chapters, it it got me thinking about Saul's legacy. What is Saul remembered for? If I could write his own epitaph, what would I say about King Saul? I would say something like Israel's first king, he started better than he finished. Or Israel's first king, partial obedience, is really complete disobedience. Or Israel's first king, his way, instead of God's way. In a lot of ways, all of those would be true and accurate. We have to remember that Saul didn't sign up to be the king of Israel. He didn't even really necessarily wanted the job. He was elected and chosen, and yet his his challenging and complicated relationship with Samuel the prophet, along with his partial obedience to the Lord, really culminates here in chapter 15 that results in his kingship being rejected by God. This chapter is one of the most sobering chapters in all of 1 Samuel. It provides a serious warning about partial obedience to the Lord that causes us to stop and reflect about the kinds of lives that we are living. What kind of legacy are are we leaving behind based on our commitment and faithfulness to the Lord? Let's jump in. We're going to look at these first couple of verses to start. And we notice that Saul is given a clear but difficult assignment. Verse one really sets the tone for the entire chapter as Samuel the prophet says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. For Samuel is given this assignment from God. Samuel wants Saul to be reminded of what his primary role should be. That is to listen and to obey the word of the Lord. In fact, the more literal translation of verse one could be, hear the sound or the voice of the words of the Lord. That verbal root word, to listen, to hear, to obey, shows up eight different times in this chapter. Yet we're reminded that first and foremost, Saul was to submit to the word of God and to obey it. So Samuel, right off the bat, is trying to remind him, hey, remember the authority, the the order of authority here. It's God, then God's prophet, and then God's king. It kind of sets the tone for the entire chapter. And then we kind of move into verses two and three. It contains the actual assignment from God, again, from God to Saul delivered by Samuel. It's difficult, but it's clear that God commands Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, to not spare anyone, no man, no woman, no children, no infant, no animals, no spoils from battle could be kept. Now, from our perspective, that is extremely disturbing, right? For us to think through this kind of command in 2023, this is one of the most difficult practices in all of the Bible. Like how can a loving God command total annihilation? Well, a couple of observations, a couple of even motivations to keep in mind as we think about this command to destroy the Amalekites. Number one, we need to be reminded, this is a call not to ethnic cleansing, but ethical cleansing. This is not genocide, but this was a way to prevent further contamination of God's holy people. The Old Testament, God's people are to be set apart. They're to be different than all of the other nations, unstained from sinful practices. And the reason for that is because Israel contained the hope of the world. As the world looked at them and they're different, they're set apart, that would draw them in to Yahweh, to who God actually is. So this is to help ensure that they are protected in that. But then the second motivation behind this is of course divine vengeance, this is an act of God's holy and righteous judgment against sin. A destruction came to the Amalekites not because they were Amalekites, but because they were sinners. So what sin did they commit to deserve this? Well, verse two alludes to it. And we'll get to that in a moment. We need to also be reminded where the Amalekites came from. Amalekites are actually descendants from a man named Amalek from Genesis chapter 36 Verse 12, Amalek was a uh, grandson of Esau, and so his descendants are known as Amalekites, and they have a long history of violence against God's people. In fact, they were Israel's first enemy. So when you look at the end of verse two there, it is alluding to a specific act, and that specific act occurred in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, God's people were coming out of Egypt, they're escaping Pharaoh there, before they arrived in Mount Sinai, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites in a brutal and dirty and unfair way. So much so that God vowed in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is reiterated in Exodus chapter 25 as well. It's also important to remember this wasn't a, a one-time act. The Amalekites were, again, they were consistent enemies of God's people. All throughout the book of Judges, even after God's people made it to the promised land, we see violence from the Amalekites. Okay, so the Amalekites here, just like all who sin, they deserve death as punishment. Romans 6.23 is still true, that the wages of sin is death. A spiritual death, but also a physical death that's wrapped up in that. So here, God is the judge over all the earth. His actions are always right and fair and just. What we see him doing here is he's he's defending his people and he's bringing about a long awaited justice. A couple other observations, I think for us on this side of the cross, I think that's helpful to keep in mind that this devotion to utter destruction, this command is actually meant to point us forward to the future and eternal punishment for all who do not believe in Jesus. That vengeance, at least for us, again, on this side of the cross, it's not to be carried out by us. That's carried out directly by God. In the Old Testament, though, God would use his people to carry out vengeance. So whenever we see examples of that, which it happens a few times in the Old Testament, for us, we look at that, and we are reminded that that's going to happen in the future completely and finally and for all of eternity, those who do not trust in Jesus. And that's a sobering thought of eternal punishment for all who don't believe in Jesus, but that is the just and right consequences for our sin. Another thing I think is helpful to keep in mind, just by observation, is that this is also part of who God is, that He is a just God, a God of righteous vengeance. Sometimes we're tempted to, to pick and choose which aspects about God that we find in the Bible that we like, and then which ones we don't really like, and we'd rather just kind of remove or cut out or 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 at least downplay. Right? So well, it's in the Bible. I guess we have to believe he's a God of justice and vengeance and wrath, but. I just won't think about that a whole lot. Let's just not talk about it. Let's maybe bypass some of those verses. I know it's in there, but I just want God to be a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's my kind of God. But, church, we are not at liberty to do that. We're not at liberty to pick and choose which attributes that we want to hold up at the expense of others. Even looking at this passage, all of us are challenged with the question, do you really trust and believe in the God of the whole Bible? These verses, the the God of justice and vengeance, that's part of the God that you claim to believe in. Is that true of you? (laughs) Or do you just want a God of love, a God who's just kind of kind and to remove these other aspects of the Lord? We cannot do that. We don't have permission to do so. Now, to be clear, this is also not a situation uh, in which the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15 are being punished for their ancestors' sins. Now, in fact, verse 18 reiterates the fact that these Amalekites are also sinners. It's the way they're described. Even in verse 33, before their king, King Agag, is put to death, reminded of his own war crimes. So just think about that for a moment. They've had 300 years since Exodus 17, 300 years. It's a long time uh, given opportunities to repent and change and to fall into submission to Yahweh, and yet they don't. So even with this really difficult command, this very difficult idea, we actually still see God's patience in this. God's even loving kindness. He's slow to this righteous anger, providing 300 years for them to turn and repent. Well, that's the clear and difficult assignment from God. Now in verses four through 11, we see Saul's obedience is tested here. We learn verse four, Saul is bringing about 210,000 men and they wait in the valley of an Amalekite city. Seems like Saul is going to obey the Lord here. Like he's ready to do business. He even shows mercy to the Kenites in verse six essentially saying, hey, you guys get lost. We're about to get this party started. And this act of mercy makes sense historically. They've had a pretty good relationship with the Kenites. Kenites come from um, Moses's father-in-law, Jethro, they're descendants of him. But then you get to verse seven. Like, I don't want to downplay this at all. We can't downplay the horrific activity that must have been included in verse seven. Saul seems to be carrying out God's assignment in obedience, until we discover the profound disappointment in verses eight and nine, that Saul actually kept the Amalekite king, King Agog, alive along with the best of the animals. Notice verse nine, it kind of reiterates this idea of Saul, who basically decided that people are with him joining in, but he's the leader. He's ultimately responsible. Now, there's going to be some confusion here in just a moment, at least on the part of Saul, um, not Samuel and the Lord, but Saul's perspective about whether or not he actually obeyed this command in full. And so God speaks to Samuel in verses 10 and 11, makes it abundantly clear. He says to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. That's clarity. That's that's the verdict on Saul and his life here. He failed to obey God and his command. Now Samuel knows. Notice what God is doing here. He's he's not going to allow Saul to argue that partial obedience is full obedience. In fact, he's clarifying this to Samuel uh, to, to make sure that he understands that partial obedience is really complete disobedience. That Saul, he obeyed this command, but not fully. He left the king alive and all these animals that won't fly with the Lord. God demands full and immediate obedience. Now notice the other thing that God tells Samuel in verse 11. Did you catch it? He actually tells Samuel, I regret making Saul king. The Lord regrets. It's kind of an interesting concept. There's probably some Uh, cognitive dissonance that we're experiencing right now because of verse 11, where it says, I regret. And then verse 29, where Samuel says that God is not like a man who experiences regrets. Okay, so which one is it? Verse 11 true, or is verse 29 true? Well, both are right. Both are right in different ways. Let's back up for a moment. When God says... I regret, what does that mean? Does this mean that God can change his mind? Does this mean that we can thwart God's plans and purposes? Does this mean that God's ignorant of the future? He's kind of surprised at at what happens and has to kind of change course. Is God like us who makes honest mistakes and looks back on those decisions and thinks, man, I wish I could have done that one over again. You read verse 11, and it it almost makes us think that that's what God is doing here, that God makes mistakes, he changes courses, he's a a cosmic flip-flopper. And yet we know that that's not the right way to understand this, that he doesn't regret in that way. we know that to be true because God is immutable, meaning God is unchanging in who he is and in his character, that God is consistent He's dependable. He always acts in accordance with his divine purposes, which is why Samuel says what he says in verse 29, that God is not like a man who experiences regret or who has regrets. He's not a man, like men change, we change. God does not change. So in what way does God regret? Well, what does verse 11 really mean then? Well, remember, God is a relational and he is a personal being. He has chosen to reveal himself through human language in a way that we can comprehend and understand that. Think about that for a moment though, because sometimes we bypass that. Sometimes we don't really think about all the implications related to that. Just think about this for a moment, that the infinite, eternal God of the universe has chosen to disclose himself through the vehicle of human language. Words and phrases are supposed to contain and explain an infinite God. Like inevitably, you're gonna have challenges with that. (laughs) Like inevitably, there are gonna be moments and verses where we come to them and we think, man, this this is falling short of capturing all that God is because of the limitation of human language and because you and I, we are finite and limited. And so this is an example of that. When we come across verse 11, theologians are like, hey, this is an example of anthropapatism, which is the attributing of human emotion and feeling onto something that's not human. They're saying that's kind of what's happening here, but it's being done so not in a way that leads to God changing his mind or sinning but it's being done in a way that shows us and explains something about God. So verse 11, God, it talks about him regretting. That's not in a way where he's changed his mind or changed his character or is sinning, but it's communicating God's feeling, his, his profound displeasure in Saul's disobedience that God is grieving this. He, he feels sorry for what's happening with Saul here, not because he's guilty, not because he's culpable, not because he's even ignorant of the future. And this is like a surprise to him. And now he needs to change course. No, he's expressing this because God is a personal being. Doesn't mean that God in, in, something in God has changed, but that something God has created has changed. And this is expressing his disappointment in a way that we can actually grasp. I know our minds are kind of exploding right now. Let's go to Kevin DeYoung for a moment. He'll make make this more clear. He says, there was always bound to be conflict in covenantal history between God and human beings. But this does not mean there is conflict within God's inner being. As God's ways appear to us, there will be change and variation. But as God is in his character and essence, there can be no variation of shadow due to change. Okay, so look, both things can be true at the same time. That God grieves Saul's disobedience and says it's time to get another king while also maintaining God never changes his mind. Both things can be true at the same time. And if you're right now struggling with trying to accept both realities, like you're having this this weird tension, you're exactly where where you need to be. That that is exactly, I think, the right place. Because if you walk in here, you're like, man, I got this whole God thing figured out. I've got no tension about understanding an infinite and eternal God, I'm good. You likely are believing and following a God of your own creation. Like our God is infinite we are limited, we are finite. And so there's several examples where we come to scripture and we come to who he is and we can't fully comprehend all that he is, but what our minds, what we want to do is create this either or approach with God and we can't. The scriptures do not. <laughs> it's not either he regrets or he doesn't regret. So no, both things can be true at the same time, but in different ways. So there's some healthy mystery in that. I think is really, really good for us. And it should create humility in our approach to the Lord God. So Saul's partial obedience here, which is really disobedience, obviously leads God to telling Samuel about that. And he's done, gonna be finding a new king here. But notice kind of the humanity of Samuel and verse 11, the second half of verse 11. It says that Samuel was what? He was angry. He cried to the Lord all night. Just imagine that, that imagery there. That Samuel, the, the same individual where when he was a boy living with Eli and he heard the, the call of the Lord, the Lord's like, e- uh, Samuel, Samuel. And he goes to Eli and he's like, did you call for me? And he's like, no, go back to bed. And it happened again, it happened again. And, and at that point, Samuel's like, here I am, Lord. <laughs> like, speak. Like I'm ready to serve. I bet in that moment, he never pictured and imagined having to now take this message to Saul who he loved and to tell him that his reign is done. So he's angry. uh, One commentary explained that the Hebrew word here, what this means is it's a state of stress and anguish in which disappointment, anger, and frustration are all intermingled. I felt that deep in my soul. I felt that because like, this is the weight of ministry a lot of times. This is the the cost and and the burden of taking a difficult message from the Lord and and revealing that. So we see in verses 12 through 23, a lot of things about Saul here that are gonna be really challenging for us as, as Samuel now, verse 12, gets up early in the morning to confront Saul and his disobedience. Samuel heard, however, that Saul went to Carmel to build a monument, not for God, but for himself, likely highlighting this victory over the Amalekites. And of course he did this in Carmel, right? You know, like Carmel needs another expensive monument. (laughs) So I could not resist that. I'm a proud Fisher's resident. If you're in Carmel, you are welcomed. We love you, wanna know and embrace you. It's just what the text says, right? So they eventually meet up, though, in a place called Gilgal, which we've seen several times before. Gilgal has been a very important location. In fact, Gilgal is where the kingdom was renewed. In chapter 11, Gilgal is where Saul lost his dynasty. In chapter 13, his dynasty would not continue on. And now in chapter 15 is where he will be fully rejected as king. Look at verse 13, it's very interesting how this conversation begins. Remember, Saul is going to confront Samuel and yet, or I'm sorry, Samuel is going to confront Saul and yet it's Saul who speaks first to Samuel. He greets him and he's very chipper, basically like, hey, good morning, Samuel, how are you doing? Remember that assignment you gave me? Well, I'm done. Mission accomplished. I've obeyed the command of God. Now we know he didn't and we also know that Samuel knows that he didn't. And so Saul here is either intentionally trying to deceive Samuel and or Saul himself is so blinded by his sin that he's self-deceived. Samuel won't have it though. He responds. He's like, well, then why do I hear those animals in the background? <laughs> like those same animals that you were supposed to take care of with the command of God to destroy everything. Now, notice the language here. So Samuel hears in his ears the sound of the animals. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Remember verse one? Samuel came to Saul for Saul to listen to the sound of the words of God. Now in this moment, all they can hear is the sound of disobedience, sound of these, of these animals. It's at this point that it's obvious that Saul is caught in his sin, right? Not only did God disclosed this to Samuel already, but now we have objective evidence with these animals. And what happens next? Oh, this is so good, this is so helpful for us because Saul's response displays the deceptive and blinding effects of sin and what it can do in an individual's life. At the very sin that leads to disobedience, often blinds the sinner from the reality of the disobedience. This is why sin is so powerful. This is why I try to stand up here almost every week and say, stop messing around with sin. Like, don't don't play with fire. It has a power to it that's really difficult to process and to understand. And one of those effects, one of the, the powers of sin is that it blinds us from its own existence, in our lives. You can't see it fully. And it does things in us. Let me point out a couple of of effects that we see in Saul of what sin tries to do. Number one, it leads us to blame shift. Look at verse 15, it leads us to blame shift. He tells Samuel here that, well, it was the people who spared the best of the sheep. Like they're the ones who brought the the animals out from the Amalekites, which is not true. Per verse nine, we've already seen that it was Saul and the people who did that. This is classic blame shift, right? We've seen the blame shifting strategy when you're caught in sin all throughout the Bible. Remember the very first sin, the Garden of Eden? We see in Genesis chapter three, verse 12, God confronts Adam and Eve and starts with the man, starts with Adam. And Adam's response is to blame shift. He goes, well, it was the woman whom you gave to me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. I'm not in the wrong. It's her. It's this woman you gave me. Blame shifting is a popular defense mechanism that we use when we are caught in sin. And we're very creative with this. We'll we'll blame shift just about anything or anyone. We'll blame shift our circumstances, right? Well, I sin because I'm just going through a really difficult season right now. We'll blame shift to other people, We'll say, well, I did this because that person did this or that person said that. We'll we'll blame just about anything. We'll blame the the way our parents raised us. We'll blame the kids. We'll blame our bosses. We'll blame the government. We'll blame the weather. We'll blame it on how I feel. That's a good one. I did this because, oh, that's just how I feel, right? As if that's authoritative in our lives, right? This is one of the blinding effects of sin. It will it will convince us that everyone else is at fault except you, that you're in the right, you're the innocent one, you're the victim. Like, you, you actually deserve this sin. Look at all that you've done, look at all that, how you've been treated. i want to stop and just ask you, is there, is there any evidence of you doing this in your own life right now? Kind of shifting the blame on something else or someone else. Be careful of this. Another effect that we see of the blinding power of sin in Saul's life is that he minimizes the seriousness of his sin by claiming pure motives. He's getting a little bit more creative here. Verse 15 still, he says that the people kept the good animals so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. So it's all good, Samuel. Like, yeah, we didn't fully obey this, but we had good intentions our, our motivations were, were right. And man, this game, we do really well ourselves. This is a good reminder that doing the wrong thing with the right motivations is still wrong. Maybe an example of this, maybe this hit too close to home, but even this morning, as you were coming to church with the family <laughs> and you're, you know, sinfully yelling at the kids or maybe your own spouse, get in the car, we gotta go, right? Like good motivation, you wanna get to church and hopefully get to church on time, but still wrong, wrong behavior to sinfully get angry at your family members. We do this in other ways, be careful of this. Next, another blinding effect of sin. I've mentioned this before already, but the partial obedience is not really disobedience. And this is getting really creative here. Again, Saul said to Samuel at the end of verse 15, Okay, we we kept some of the animals, you got me, but we destroyed everything else. Like we, we partially obey the command, that counts, right? Partial credit is still full credit, right? It's the thought that counts, come on, Samuel. And the reason why this is so good and creative, what sin does is because with Saul here, he's creating a spectrum of obedience. It's no longer either you obey or you disobey, now, now there's kind of this gray. You know, it's not black and white, but there's this spectrum, this continuum. And if you partially obey, then it counts as full obedience. And you gotta be careful of this. This is another blinding effect that sin has. We justify our actions when we kind of do this. We, we will say something like, well, I didn't really fully gossip about that person because there's a lot more I could have said about them. I, I still held back. I partially obeyed. Or we say, well, my heart was you know, in a really bad place, but at least I served at church on Sunday. Right? partially obeyed, even though you're hard and, and internally you're in a bad place. Or we might say, I didn't look at full-on pornography. I just looked at a few bad images. Right? Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Partial obedience is complete disobedience disobedience. Because notice how Samuel responds. Verse 16, Samuel looks at Saul and he says, stop. Stop it. So good. Basically, he's telling Saul, you're guilty. Like you're in the wrong. God has told me everything already. Stop. And it's so helpful. It's so effective. If you're Walking alongside someone who's, who's in sin and they're blinded by sin, this is a really good strategy to use, to just look them in the eyes and say, stop, like, wake up. You're not seeing clearly enough right now. You're justifying your actions. Stop, you are in the wrong. It's such a helpful way to have someone come alongside you and to say that to us right in the eyes. Do you have a Samuel in your life? Do you have somebody who loves you enough to look you in the eyes and say, you've got to stop this? Samuel continues, verses 17 and 19. He really lays it on Saul here. He's like, man, you knew the assignment from God. It's so clear. So why did you not obey it fully? This is another great thing to say to someone who's walking in sin, Not only stop, but why? Like what what drove you to do this? Like those why questions are so good to get to the root issue, right? The, The stop is helpful, but you're only kind of addressing behavior. But the why questions addresses the heart. You're now getting to the root issue that's displaying the sinful behavior. This is really good, important reminder for us parents. So we're correcting, disciplining our kids. Whew, man, it's so easy just to address the behavior when they're acting up, you know, the grocery store. Just stop it already. It takes way more work to get down on their level and to ask those why questions that addresses the heart. Yet we're called to shepherd what's in here. Well, verses 20 and 21, Saul now gets defensive. I think when we read these verses, there is so much defensiveness in this moment, which, honest, is probably another blinding effect of sin on our lives. We become these defense attorneys, right? We argue and defend and make excuses for why we are blameless, other people are at fault. And so Samuel responds, man, in verses 22 and 23, and he lays down the hammer. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Wow, what a challenge. What, what a word, not just for Saul, but man, what a word for us today. He, he's telling Saul, hey, hey, those animals that you've kept, to make a sacrifice for the Lord, they don't matter at all, unless you obey the word of the Lord. He's basically saying, God doesn't care about your empty outward religious activity. God wants your heart. He doesn't want you to go through the motions religiously. He doesn't want you just to cross off those things on your spiritual to-do list. God wants inward submission. And that is a challenge for us today. You wonder if, if this verse could be written this way. Has the Lord as great delight in church attendance or attending Bible studies or doing outreach, out, outreach ministry or, or serving at church as in obeying the word of the Lord? Look, better to submit to God, better to obey his word, better to worship God, from the hearts, better to delight in him and love him than be caught up in this empty religious and mechanical activity. Look, God wants what's in here, not just for your empty religious performance. I mean, I know, look, we gather here every Sunday as a church. We, We do something that a lot of people consider to be religious. This is something that it's so easy, though, for us to walk in here and to be like, all right, I'm just gonna kind of go through the motions, gonna kind of sing a few songs, gonna walk out here, get in our car. We can check that off our list. We're good for the week. And, and, if, and if you have that mindset, that, that's exactly what the word of God is calling us out on. That's an empty religious performance. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want you just to walk in here and be like, all right, well, get it over with. Hope Chris doesn't go over 40 minutes today. we got things to do, got a long list and and your mind and your heart starts to wander. No, God wants you to walk in here and for your heart to say, God, meet with us today. God, I want to experience you today. God, show me your word today. Convict me and stir within me a heart that has wholehearted obedience to the Lord. That's what God wants of us today. No matter how old you are, God wants all of you today. He wants you to walk in here and say, God, have your way with me. And that is a challenge for each and every one of us. Well, to close, we find in verses 24 through 35, and I am going over my time today. That's why I said that. We see the final verdict of King Saul. Verses 24 through 26, Saul appears as though he's sorry and he repents, but it's a false repentance. This is a superficial repentance. He goes as far as acknowledging his sin, but he does not turn and change the way he's living. You'd see the rest of 1 Samuel as evidence of that. But even verse 30 caught my eye. He's, he's kind of negotiating still with Samuel, he wants Samuel to honor him before the elders of Israel. That's not repentance. Repentance is not still trying to manage your image and trying to control what other people think of you. When you get to verse 27, I think it's finally hitting Saul that he's lost everything. And in desperation, he even tries to grab a hold of Saul's robe there and it, and it tears if you recall early on in First Samuel, it noted that, that um, Samuel's mother would, would make him a robe every year. And we don't know if, if Hannah is still alive here, but Samuel uses that rip there as an illustration. He says, the Lord has torn Israel's kingdom from you this day and will give it to another, someone better than you. Samuel, of course, is talking about David, who we will meet next chapter in chapter 16. But man, this is... This is the final verdict of King Saul. This is a sad, sad ending for the first king of Israel. Samuel goes on, he takes care of business with King Agag. He puts him to death. And then verses 34 and 35 provide this kind of ending to Samuel and Saul's relationship. They don't see each other again until the day of Samuel's death. This is pretty much it for Saul as we think about his authority as king, as God kind of speaking to him still. We're gonna see more issues of Saul throughout the rest of First Sam, which just continues to get worse and worse. And in closing, you know, Saul's life, this serves as a warning to us. His life is is urging us to consider what kind of legacy we will leave behind. As we think about Saul and his life just marred by partial obedience and folly, Look, the reality is, the beautiful reality is that you and I, we have an opportunity to craft a different narrative for how we will be remembered, for for what our legacies will be, for for what people think about when they think about your name, that we don't have to be a Saul of partially obeying and continuing to fall into foolishness. No, for us, by the power of the gospel, Like what we can be known for, what people can think of is wholehearted obedience to the Lord. Their hearts were fully devoted to obeying what God has said. I think that's a key takeaway as we think about Saul's life and his story. Even for us to examine our hearts and our actions, are we prone to blame shifting, minimizing sin? Are we prone to even justifying disobedience in our lives? We're more concerned with, with empty religious activity rather than true heart obedience. Look, maybe you're here and, and you're hearing kind of this articulation of Saul's life and story and the blinding effect of sin. And, and you would say, man, that sounds a lot like my life today. Maybe you'd say, man, I, I feel like I'm just like King Saul. And maybe you're starting to see, like spiritually see, Areas of sin in your life for the very first time, and you're wondering, Pastor, what's the, path for, what's the path forward? How do I get out of this mess of being blinded by my sin? And look, I would encourage you that the path forward is God's grace. We saying about it here this morning, but the path forward is the loving kindness of God that, that draws us in to repentance. 1 John 1 9, it promises us that if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the key there is to confess, to, to own your sin. To not blame shift, not make excuses, but to take the words of Samuel and to stop sinning and to confess it to the Lord. Why? Because God is faithful. God is just, God is kind, he's loving. He will forgive you of your sin and not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus died in order to pay your penalty, all of your sin and all of your disobedience. Jesus got up on a cross and paid for your debt on your behalf because he did that. He can offer forgiveness, true forgiveness, for all who turn from their sins and put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Look, the reality is that we're, we've all been a King Saul before. <laughs> like, at, we've all been there, and yet we throw ourselves upon the mercy and the grace of God. Church, may we strive to be known for our wholehearted devotion to God, unwavering obedience to what the word says we Obey.